from the book of Lamentations, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan. Her young women grieve, and she is bitter anguish. She is bitter in anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. From Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the through the laying on my hands. For the Spirit God gave us the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of, what, of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 15, starting with verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, 
Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Well, he thanked the servant because he did what he was told to do. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good to be with you all this morning. So, all right, so there's, uh, when we have a small group like this, there's like great things and then there's challenging things. The great things are, I don't know what I'm going to say today, like, like when it's a few friends, I may say all kinds of things that I wouldn't say with a big group, so just watch out. Um, but I need a little bit more of your help. I need a little more of your engagement. We need to all stay awake. Can we all stay awake? Okay. We're going to have, yes, I like that, more of that. Also, we may have some competition this morning. I'm already hearing a bass guitar kind of outside, and there may be some sound checks and stuff because there's like a festival right across the street. But that's okay. If the persecuted church in China can worship this morning or whenever the time zone is, thinking they're going to be arrested at any point, we can handle a little background noise. Amen. 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 All right. So I was really blessed growing up to be taught by parents who helped me nurture a relationship with God in my life. I am always conscious whenever I say that or I talk about my upbringing that not all of us were blessed with that, okay? Um, We all come from different backgrounds and different perspectives. Some of us were raised in the church. Some of us weren't. Um, But the beauty is no matter what kind of family you were raised in, uh, no matter what was lacking, no matter whether you were raised in the faith or not, we have a new family. We have the family of God. We are part of a new family. This is an analogy, a metaphor that's used all throughout the New Testament, that you are part of a new family. And that means that you have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and grandparents in the faith that go past your bloodline, your ethnicity, your regional background, all of that. We are part of a new family, and that's what Scripture tells us. Now, Some of us, like I said, and I was one of those, are uniquely blessed to have parents, biological parents, who nurtured us in the family of God. Now, I was a pretty fearful child, okay? Um, I wasn't shy, but I got scared of things really easily. So uh, for me, I was scared of um, like witchcraft and magic and demons and all that stuff just freaked me the heck out. I went through large stretches of my life where I couldn't sleep at night um, without like a light on or something. I mean, this was a long time ago, right? But <laughs> it wasn't yesterday or anything. Um, without, without those things in my life, right? So, and one of the things I remember is when I couldn't sleep because of fear, my mom used to quote this verse that we read, that Jacob read this morning. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Translation is a little different on that, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. I wonder if anybody remembers the children's church song for that. No. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he has given unto us the spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a sound mind, right? So that's the song that, okay, I'm the only one. That's fine. It's, it's all right. I'm glad I went through that whole thing. Um, thank you. Nice. So this verse is taken directly from our Timothy passage. We are not given a spirit of fear, but we are given a different spirit, Paul says. We are given the Holy Spirit, 
And this is such an important reminder for us that no matter what we face in this life, no matter what social fear we face, no matter what political fear we face, relational fear we face in our life, financial fear, physical fear, anything like that, we are reminded that we can set our face toward it with confidence because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Paul begins this passage by commending Timothy to kindle a specific gift within himself. And we're not told what that gift is, but he says, fan this gift that you've been given into flame. Something about Timothy, whether he was a good preacher or an evangelist, or uh, he was good at discipleship or pastoring, or and there was something about Paul laying his hands on him, we think at ordination, that uh, kind of fanned this, flame into get, this gift into flame. And he's saying, continue to fan this into flame. Fan this in your heart. Allow this to grow. We don't know exactly specifically what it was. But whatever it is, Paul says, that gift that you have, don't be cowardly about it. Don't be timid about it. Don't be fearful about it. Why? Because that's not the spirit that we've been given. The spirit is a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Now, does that mean that we just fix it and we just say, okay, today at church I learned that I'm not supposed to be fearful. That fixes all of my fears, right? No, no. Um, There is something in our heart. There's a work in our heart. And that reminder is so important. We are going to experience the feelings of fear But it means that that spirit that dwells in us, that dwells in us from the moment we came into this new family is greater than that thing that we fear. And that reminder is so important. We no longer have to fear. Paul is writing to Timothy and we get this sense that Timothy is afraid, that he's timid. And it might just be related to his youth. Timothy was really, really young and he's pastoring or he's leading in some context and Paul is telling him, don't be afraid. So he's young, he's now preaching, he's teaching, he's evangelizing, he's discipling. And honestly, I think it's better when young ministers are timid than when young ministers are too confident. Um, Many of us, I'm gonna include myself in this, have had to learn that the hard way. That just because we got a graduate degree in theology doesn't mean that we know everything about the Christian life. Um, Many of us tend to be too cocky. We don't know what we don't know. But there is a certain kind of confidence that comes from being a Christian. It's not that I know better than everybody else. It is the Spirit knows. (laughs) The Spirit knows better, and somehow the Spirit lives in me in a significant way. It is the confidence that comes from the reality that we have been found, we've been rescued, and the desire for others to experience that foundedness, that rescue, that liberation. It is the confidence that comes from knowing we are part of a family. We have a new identity that's different. Paul tells Timothy that he knows that he has a sincere faith. And he says, this faith lived in his grandmother, Lois, I love this passage because I have a grandmother, Lois, and also in his mother, Eunice. So he points out specifically his grandmother had this faith, his mother had this faith, and now you have this faith. And I think it's so interesting that Paul points Timothy to the story of his faith. Timothy is blessed in that he has a grandmother who has faith, he has a mom who has faith. And it's also intriguing that Paul doesn't mention any of the male figures in Timothy's life. Think about that for a minute. Luke tells us in Acts that Timothy's father was Greek and his mother was Jewish. So we can presume that his father was probably an unbeliever, but Timothy's mother, Eunice, 
was a believing Jewess who became a Christian. And before her, Timothy's grandmother, Lois, had evidently been converted. So he has this family lineage of faith that's been passed down to him through the women in his life. Even before their conversion to Christ, though, these godly Jewish women instructed Timothy even out of the Old Testament. So what Paul is saying to Timothy is, be reminded you're part of a story. You're part of this ongoing story, and it's been passed down from generation to generation to you. There was this really interesting book several years ago that was released by sociologist Vern Bingston, and it's called Families, of Faith, Families and Faith, How Religion is Passed Down Across Generations. It's this fabulous, interesting, landmark study, 35-year study of families, and it focuses on the question, how is religion passed down from generation to generation to generation? How does that happen? What is the mechanism? What happens? What, what are the principles or the disciplines or whatever when this happens? And Bengston found four key things in regards to parents passing down faith to the next generation. The first thing is that parents' influence is crucial. And that may sound obvious, but there was this myth for a long time in believing that today parents' influence isn't as important anymore as it used to be, that now things don't really pass down based on how influential the parents are. Well, this study says that's a complete myth, that parents are just as influential in passing down faith today than they were in 1970 when this study began. Um, this is true on every level and every measurement marker. So parents continue to be the single greatest influence on their children's faith. And interesting, interestingly, do you know what the second most, the gr second greatest influence is on a child's faith? Grandparents. <laughs> parents and grandparents. You can believe that. One of the things that we see, one of the things that confuses people is we do see that denominational loyalty is down. So for a long time, you could track, like people would just join the denomination that the, of Christianity that their parents were involved in, and that just happened from generation to generation. And you could track your denomination affiliation to your family. So if your grandparents came from Germany or Scandinavia, you were gonna be Lutheran. If they came from Italy or Ireland or Latin America, you're gonna be Catholic. Well, nowadays, kids feel free to jump from one denomination to the other. So that has changed things a little bit. But... Younger generations are no less likely to inherit core beliefs and religious practices. They may jump to a different denomination and may jump back and forth, but they are just as likely to inherit their parents' core beliefs and religious practices. So that's the first thing, is parents' influence is crucial. Secondly, bland faith doesn't transfer. Bland faith doesn't transfer. So in every way that the study tested, those who were either super, super religious or not religious at all, transferred that quality to the next generation at significantly higher rates than those who were in the middle, okay? So parents who attend church weekly or more and those who attend never, pass that quality on to their kids 59% and 55% of the time, respectively. Those who attended either monthly or once a year, on the other hand, had young adult children who fit into the same category only 31% and 26% of the time. Okay, that's numbers and all this stuff. But it's significant. Like, like, like faith that is intentional, faith that is real, that is genuine, that is authentic, or no faith at all is really likely to be passed down to the next generation. The stuff kind of in the middle 
is not so much, is what this is saying. The third thing is the power of a close relationship. The single greatest factor in whether a parent successfully imparted their faith to their children, greater than all the things that we discussed, was the quality of their relationship with those children. That's it. How close they were, the relationship to their kids. That was it. Between evangelical and mainline Protestants, a close relationship with mom had a small effect on the likelihood of religious transmission. It was a significant effect, but it was small. Okay. A close relationship with dad had a gigantic effect. It's interesting. This doesn't mean dad had to be particularly pious. Doesn't mean dad has to have everything figured out. Okay, of course not. I hope not, at least. <laughs> but it's the bonding itself. And it's the encouragement to explore faith and the genuineness that is passed down. Um, the study also showed that displays of parental piety, so just trying to make sure our kids have all the right beliefs and practices and keeping strictly to the law, all of that can mean nothing if the kids don't feel close to their parents when they're being raised without emotional bonding. Finally, the last thing that Bengston studied, the last thing, love the prodigal. And I thought this was so significant. As somebody who has pastored mostly young people throughout my ministry, um, children who walked away from their faith and later came back, they were part of this study. And in almost every case, it was found that their parents have been patient and supportive and perhaps more tolerant and open than they had been before the, the prodigal's departure. So basically, like when um, a child wandered away from the faith, which most do on some level, right, begin to ask questions or begin to kind of move off the path or, or whatever, the parents who remain loving and supportive are the ones who the, the kids feel safer in coming back to the faith. Does that make sense? Okay. So what does that mean? What does that mean for passing down faith to kids? Well, for me, I was challenged in this way. And if you don't have kids, this is all gonna connect in a little bit, okay? This isn't just for, for those who have kids. But, but it, for me, it's the challenge of take a look at the faith that I'm passing on, that we're passing on. What practices and or beliefs do we hope our kids will inherit from us? What are those things? How do, we see those, how do they see those things naturally and consistently displayed in our lives? And then where could we be more intentional about passing our faith on? Now, it's important for us to remember no one is perfect. Um, your pastor does not always look very Christian in front of his daughter all the time, okay? So I am realizing today, I am convicted by this. None of us are perfect. And I even think it's those imperfections that God uses in us. But it's yielding to the power of the Holy Spirit and trusting what are those disciplines and those things in my life? The second thing is, and the study recommends this, get a hand from grandma and grandpa. Is there a grandparent or another senior adult who can reinforce what you hope your kids can learn about Jesus? Creating those opportunities that they can pray together or read the Bible together or talk about their own relationship with Christ. The Fuller Youth Institute says, we found grandchildren are more likely to talk about faith struggles with others if grandparents had consistent conversations with them about faith, while grandchildren who witnessed grandparents serving were more likely to grow up knowing their life is filled with meaning and purpose. 
older adults have a tremendous opportunity to deepen faith in young people. So maybe you're here today and, you, and you're like, well, my grandparents would not be helpful in that way or my parents would not be helpful in that way. And so how does this help me? Well, this is where we have that reminder that we have a broader body of Christ, that there are other senior adults in our life who can be part of our kid's story. Also learn from your kids. Ask your kids how they know Jesus is important to you and that you love him. See if, and I'm trying to have these conversations more with Lucy, like, have you noticed that this is really important to me and your mom? That when we pray this way, that this is really intentional for us and we do it for this reason. Like kids can help us kind of see, are we really doing that? Is that really significant? Um, so Paul is telling Timothy, you were part of this story that was passed down from generation to generation. And he says, don't be afraid of that. You're part of that story. You are part of this family. So don't be timid. This is part of who you are. And Paul tells Timothy three things that this spirit that lives in him is in contrast to fear, okay? So he gives him three things, power, love, and sound mind, self-discipline is another way to say that. So the first thing he says is power. We are suspicious of power in our culture. And I think we're rightly suspicious of power. Maybe you've heard the saying, power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. <laughs> Have you heard that? We live in a culture that's suspicious of power, and I think we're rightly suspicious of power because we've seen it so abused. Because power is powerful, right? It's what it is. It can have a devastating effect, but power is also necessary and inevitable. We hold power. People hold power. Someone has to make decisions in life. Power is necessary to defend the weak and the vulnerable. Someone has to exercise power to give a sense of direction. Human, God designed human authorities to participate with him in bringing order, in stewarding their power, in bringing harmony to the world. Power is necessary in the church, just like it's necessary anywhere. Power doesn't come from holding a particular office, having a certain personality. No, listen here. Power is having the ability to do and say things which bring about change which lead others in a way that is good and right, to speak words of wisdom which draw people, and to bring healing to broken situations. That is healthy power. The spirit that lives in us as Christians is a spirit of power. And Paul says to Timothy, who's afraid to use his gifts or is timid about using his gifts, he says, you have a spirit of power. And it may be that Timothy didn't have a really forceful personality, and so he felt like, Paul, I'm not like you. I, I don't have the same gifts that you do. And Paul is saying, but you do have this power. Use your gifts because the spirit of power lives in you. But it's not just power. Paul follows up power immediately with love, okay? Power that is not rooted in love is dangerous. Listen to that. Power divorced from love is where it gets abusive where it gets coercive, where it gets dominating. Power and love always go together. In our small group, we're reading this book called Ordinary Church. And the author, I just, 
the author has uh, really warmed my heart. His name's Joseph Beach, and he's been a pastor at the same church in Denver for 45 years. And, and he goes into a chapter on how do we define the church? Like, what is the church? Is the church just a group of Christians hanging out? Like, what are we talking about when we talk about church? And he gives this definition that I think is helpful. The church is something actual and official, governed by official and recognized servant leaders, open to anyone and everyone the Lord calls, a fellowship of difference, which means that, and it's difference, E-N-T-S, not E-N-C-E. So it means that all of us come from different places, right? The church is diverse in that way, that proclaims the gospel and administers the sacraments or ordinances, okay? So all of those things together. Now in small group, we read that and then we all agreed, wow, that's a mouthful. That's a lot to chew on, right? But notice the church does have leaders. Leaders are important. But just like Paul qualifies, puts power and love right next to each other, Joe Beach here has leaders and servant right next to each other. Servant leaders. Christian power only exists for the sake of, of love. When it is unmoored, when it is disconnected from love, power destroys rather than heals. Likewise, on the other side, if we have only love and we don't have power, it can degenerate into sentimentality, right? Because we don't do anything with that love. When power in our world and in the church is exerted with generous self-giving love, people are more inclined to follow. So I want you to think for a minute the places in your life where you have power. We all have those things, where we have some authority. Maybe it's at your job, right? That you have somebody that you oversee or that you've been given a responsibility to carry out, right? Maybe it's in your family. We have power in our families, our kiddos, right? Or, um, our partner and us, we have shared power with each other, right? Do the people who you are leading know the power you're carrying is generous and self-giving? That it's not power for power's sake, that it's rooted in love and designed for healing. So we have God's given us a spirit of power and of love. And then the third one is a sound mind or self-discipline is another way that it's translated. The same spirit who pours out love and pours out power also gives Christian leaders self-discipline or prudence. That's another fancy word or a sound mind. Basically, we have to be able to, in life, avoid distractions, to think clearly and effectively as what needs to be done and how to do it. Now, some of us need to hear this today because it's really easy to become overwhelmed with the things of life, isn't it? Like, that is almost like the number one thing that I hear from, from so many of us and so many in our world today. It's like, I'm just overwhelmed. There's just too much. Like, there's not margin. There's not space. I don't know how to get through today because it just feels like a cloud is everywhere. I'm swamped. I found myself in a bit of this kind of season right now that I've been swamped by the concerns of work and raising a first grader who is a very active, lively first grader who I'm thankful for. Keeping the house together, 
preparing for the possibility we might have another child soon, and that goes up and down. We don't know when all that's going to happen. And the other day, the girls told me that they want a puppy. Um, I wanted to scream. (laughs) I can't do anything else, okay? That's what I wanted to say. Have you ever felt so overwhelmed by the stuff of life? It just feels like a haze. It just feels, I can't make it through this. I'm just, it's swampy. It's like, I can't cut through it all and make clear decisions because it's just overwhelming. Is it only me that feels that way sometimes? Okay, good, a couple people too. Paul reminds Timothy that the spirit which lives in him is a spirit of a sound mind or of self-discipline. It helps us with, with wisdom, with making decisions. And he says this to us as a reminder not as a condemnation. So hear this out. He's not saying, Timothy, stop being so overwhelmed. Have a sound mind. No, that's not, because that, that's not helpful, is it? Like if somebody tells you when you're like freaking out and you're overwhelmed and you're swamped, if somebody comes up and says, that's not that big a deal, just move on. It's not helpful. <laughs> no, like I can't get through this swampiness right now. God knows we struggle, and it's easy for us in life to just throw our hands up and not do anything because we get paralyzed by fear. But God's loving reminder is, no, like, you got this. But it's actually, no, I got this. (laughs) I got this for you. Don't trust yourself. Trust in the spirit who lives in you. Paul is confident in this in Timothy because of the family and the story that he is part of. Timothy is a third-generation Christian, and it's amazing in our world today when that happens, when you have um, generation after generation who are Christians. That's wonderful. But think about back then. This is actually being written not too long after Christ's resurrection, okay? Um, This may have been the last epistle Paul wrote before his death, maybe about 90 AD. So you've got this this three generations here in this span of like when Jesus rose from the dead, 30-ish AD to like 90 AD, there are somehow three generations of people that have all become Christians. Like that's powerful. That's amazing. Paul and Timothy had this really close relationship and Timothy watched Paul like a son watches a father. In fact, here, Paul calls him my son. Perhaps Paul was really Timothy's Christian father figure because he didn't have another one in life. I'm not sure if you've ever picked up little mannerisms in your life that come from a parent or a mentor. Maybe you look at pictures or you look at, you hear, you see yourself on video and you go, oh my gosh, when did I turn into my mom or my dad? Or like, whoa, that's my brother. That's not me, (laughs) right? Like, have you ever had that happen? In my preaching, whenever I hear myself on a recording, um, I hear it all the time. Sometimes it's my dad. I hear my dad. Sometimes I hear my mom. Um, Sometimes I hear the voice of the pastor I had when I first started preaching a lot. And I can tell I kind of modeled some of my things after him. Sometimes it's the guy I listened to his podcast all the time when I was a youth pastor. I'm like, oh, that's actually that guy. That's not me. (laughs) Timothy certainly picked up a lot from Paul. And our passage says he was moved to tears when Paul had to leave. There's this disconnect. There's this, you're leaving. That relationship was so strong. But Paul says, do not be afraid. We all have fears in our life that we wrestle with daily. Um, I think about the fears that we all have of being ashamed in public, 
This is like a, a fear all of us face. Like anytime I ever think about certain moments in my life where I got um, embarrassed in public, it's like I get, oh, I get that sinking feeling in my stomach and my hands start to sweat, right? And oh, I hate that. Like that recurring nightmare where you're at school and you forgot that today was the due date for your senior paper, right? Oh gosh, I hate that one. Or you show up to a party where you thought it was jeans and t-shirt appropriate, but it's black tie, right? These kind of moments. But these are all pretty small shames, right? These are kind of cultural, small, somewhat small things, even though they feel big. But if they happen, they're not ruining our lives necessarily, Our Lamentations text today is the expression of the shame of a people, the shame of Israel, what they experienced in exile. And verse six says, all the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness, they have fled before the pursuer. The culture that Paul was living into and speaking into is what we would call today an honor-shame culture. There were all kinds of things that could bring honor or shame on you or your family, that if you did them, they would cause you honor or they would cause you shame. And in Paul's world, this was like carefully watched and monitored and graded. And Paul is writing this letter from prison. And at this point, he's at the lowest point on the honor shame scale. He's a prisoner. He's been arrested. He's thrown in prison. He is in complete shame. In fact, we believe that the prison that Paul was being held in was underground inside a Roman aqueduct. Okay, so think about this for a minute. What would happen is every once in a while, they would flush the aqueduct and the raw sewage would come into the prison via a valve. So for some prisoners who weren't executed, the Romans would just open fully up this valve and flood the whole prison with raw sewage and to kill the prisoners. I know it's awful, but that's what's going on with Paul, okay? So Paul is writing literally from a toilet prison, okay? So think about the lowest on the honor-shame culture. Paul is writing to Timothy these like feelings of pain and of hurt and of longing for him, and he's writing them from a toilet prison, The ultimate determinant in this culture of who deserved honor and who deserved shame was Rome, particularly the Roman emperor. So what Paul does in his language, it's so interesting, he pokes at the emperor. He uses political language. In verse 10, he says, God has revealed our savior, King Jesus. And the word revealed or appearing is emperor language. Caesar is strong and powerful and has royal robes and determines honor and shame in our society. But Paul is saying Jesus is the true rescuer of the world. He is the one who truly appeared, the deliverer of the world. And the ultimate event that reveals Jesus this way is the resurrection. Why would the resurrection do that? Well, because the final tool of honor and shame for cultures for emperors and for kings. The final thing they can use to exert power over you that's disconnected from love. The final thing they can do to dominate you is to kill you, is death. Death is the end. That's the last tool in the toolbox that someone can use. The worst they can do, Paul says, is kill you. That's all they have. That's the worst thing that the emperor could possibly do. We could say to us today, the worst thing that the culture could do to you The worst thing that society could do to you, the worst thing that could happen in life is death. And yet we serve the God who conquered death. There's something on the other side of death. 
There's something greater than death. In Jesus, God has showed us that death doesn't have the final word. Paul is not just taking a shot at the emperors. He's also taking a shot at the Greek philosophers because the Greek philosophers believed in this idea of the immortality of the soul. So when someone's body died, their soul was taken to an immortal existence, and that was the goal of life. But the resurrection, Paul says, is more than that. It's a new kind of bodily life, not subject to pain or sickness or death. It's not just escaping death, it's conquering death. The resurrection of Jesus has conquered the last tool in evil's toolbox, death itself. Paul is in prison for preaching the good news of this Jesus that rose from the dead. And there was no doubt he was doing what he was supposed to do. And yet doing what he is supposed to do put him at the lowest status in toilet prison. Even Paul's friends, we see throughout the rest of this letter, were tempted. Paul's at the end of his life. He's here in this toilet prison. And Paul's friends start to distance themselves from him because he's at such a low place in shame. They start to be ashamed of him and thereby to be ashamed of the gospel itself. Think about his situation for a minute. Sitting in the toilet prison because he did what he knows what is right and all of his friends begin to turn on him. But Paul says to Timothy in the midst of all this, don't worry about other people. Do what you're supposed to do. Suffer for the gospel. Because Jesus shows us that the way of life is through suffering, not avoiding suffering. You have been saved, you have been rescued, and God's power doesn't look like earthly power, but it actually overrides all earthly power. Our sense as Christians of honor and shame, the things that we're ashamed of and embarrassed about, we need to recalibrate that in light of Jesus. They need to align with the power of God, with the power of resurrection, rather than what the world says. When Paul preaches the gospel, when Timothy preaches the gospel, when you live and preach the gospel, you don't have to be ashamed. And Paul challenges Timothy to hold on to this story that he's part of like a treasure he should keep safe. Guard it. It needs to be rightly dispersed, he says. So for us, I think the challenge today is when there are things in this life that try to shame you, your past, your failures, when people reject you, when there's that moment of feeling, okay, maybe I'm worthless after all. (laughs) I thought that I was created in this way and God blessed me in this way and maybe I'm just really nothing. When you hear those false messages over and over again, we can be reminded that we have a new identity that the worst that they can do to you is kill. It's the worst they have. You are part of a better story. You are part of the family of God. And this is not because of what we've done, but it's because of what he says and who he says you are. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit living in us. Not a spirit of fear, as we often lean into, but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. May we be reminded of the confidence that we can have in you. 
when the other false stories raise their head and try to convince us that we're this because of how we look or what we've achieved or what we've earned or how we've failed, how we've messed up. Lord, remind us that you've called us into something completely different. Lord, I pray today that um, we would embrace this story that we're part of, this history that we're part of. Today on World Communion Sunday, churches all around the world are gathering and receiving of your body and your blood. Um, Help us to remember that we are part of this greater story. And as we seek to be a church that it's not just about getting people here, but a church that's about formation and shaping, about the long game of shaping generations and generations to come, Lord, will you help us to embrace a faith that lasts, not because it's trendy or cool, but because it's real. We love you and we thank you today. In Jesus' name, amen.